0: Funny, I'm struggling how to start this episode. Uh, I keep thinking, oh, I can make it funny and start and say, my name's Justin, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, but I actually, I don't, I don't really subscribe to that word for myself. Um, I've struggled with that. And you know, that's part of what I'm gonna talk about. So maybe, maybe this is my introduction. And I wanna tell you guys about um, the journey to me deciding to quit drinking um, and some of the behaviors that I had, it took me a couple times and some of the behaviors that I had to recognize, um, some people call them triggers, uh, whatever you want to call them. Some things that I had to change to kind of give myself the support I needed. Uh, January's coming up in a few days and people try to do the sober January. Me and my wife do that every year and. Uh, sometimes we make it the whole month, and other times uh, we make it a week, and other times we make it two weeks. And, you know, there's, I think right off the bat, I can tell you, it's important to not apply shame in those situations. If you, if you don't make it, um, the shame will only lead to more issues down the road. So, if you are going to try sober January, or if you're questioning your own drinking habits... Um, Or if you have heard about me recently celebrating six months sober and are curious and that's why you're listening. uh, Either way, I want to share my story with you guys and some education that I learned and some best practices. And then we'll go from there. So I'm not going to give you like a life history of drinking. Um, There's nothing special. I started drinking when I was 17 at, you know, high school parties with friends and that blossomed into you know uh what almost 2 decades of drinking and that's that's kind of how that goes right like you start drinking in high school or for some people shortly thereafter for a few others before um and then you just that's that's just something you do and whether you do that once a week once a day once a month uh whatever that looks like that's drinking is just you start drinking one day and then for most people then you never stop drinking um, that's one of the bigger realizations I came to that I'm going to get to in a little bit when I uh, first quit drinking, is how you just start drinking one day and then you never stop drinking. But it kind of started for me recognizing that I had a problem. Um, I, I had made multiple terrible decisions while drinking. Uh, from my conversations with people, I feel like everybody in their 20s, has driven drunk and regretted it Uh, my parents generation are famous for this and it didn't feel like regret came into it as much it wasn't punishable uh, nearly as harshly as it is today and wasn't focused on there wasn't you know mothers against drunk driving students against drunk driving none of that existed in our parents generation and so that happened a lot more frequently and I think when we're younger and our brain hasn't fully developed. We make some pretty stupid decisions. And alcohol lowering our inhibitions does not help that. So, I mean, I've, I've done some like bad shit while drunk driving and glad that nobody ever got hurt. Except for maybe some property damage that I wasn't held accountable for, thankfully. I got lucky. Uh, and it should have been an eye-opener when it happened, but it wasn't. As I got older, I realized how stupid drunk driving was, especially when, you know, Uber and Lyft and all this stuff is out there. And I stopped doing it altogether. Um, I was getting married in like a couple years and it just, you know, essentially when I hit 30, I was like, what am I doing? And thankfully stopped doing that. But those were the bigger picture, bad mistakes uh, that a lot of people can be like, oh yeah, I'm like, we all, we've all done stupid shit while drinking, right? And then I started listening to podcasts and I started hearing some people that I respected and people that I related to talk about how they were sober and they weren't always sober. They went through some shit and decided uh, that was the best option for them. Um, One I've talked about on here before, and he's actually promoted this podcast, um, is Chris Hardwick. He wrote a book and he had a he has a podcast and talks about uh him overcoming drinking and how much he was drinking after like singled out and stuff like that and how much it affected his life and started hearing that and some stories, you know, they start firing in the back of your head and you're you're thinking, Oh, this is I can relate to this. Like yes, I know that feeling, I know those I know those bad ideas, those bad decisions. And then Dax Shepard came out with a podcast called Armchair Expert, which if anybody listens to this and that knows that that is very obviously an inspiration for this podcast. But Dax is very straightforward and uh, nonchalant, really, about um, a lot of things in his life. Uh, vulnerable about uh, previous sexual abuse and uh, how he's a very toxically masculine male that he's trying to fix. But above all, he's, I think like 14 years sober, but he's very open about, uh, the, the shit that led him to that decision. And I related to some of that. And then I heard a very (laughs) much more extreme, um, version of addiction. And that was Russell brand. And I read his book and I listened to his podcast interviews and while I couldn't relate to like the things he was doing for crack, um, I could relate to some of the, the desire, the addiction, you know, the, the addictive behaviors. And I knew that I was susceptible to alcoholism for my whole life because my father was an alcoholic and his father before him. And like my generation of males in my family carries down things like hernias and alcoholism um, and, you know, great dark hair. So one out of three ain't bad. And then a huge tipping point for me. I was listening to Dax Shepherd's podcast, Armchair Expert, and Pete Holmes was on it. And he was talking about a book he read called This Naked Mind. And because a lot of people don't prescribe to the 12 steps. Uh, if you're not familiar, the 12 steps, um, any recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex, Love Addicts Anonymous, um, any addiction program, any 12 step program is essentially the same you just replace whatever that word is alcohol drugs whatever it is with whatever your addiction is but uh it subscribes to a higher power and a lot of people struggle with that um i'm not a religious person myself so that was always like i don't know and you learn like the definition of higher power can be anything like uh you know the universe has a bunch of crap that no one can explain so that can be a higher power like whatever whatever that is something that is in more control than you are um whether that be science or God or whatever you subscribe to. Uh, But a lot of people don't like the 12-step program. And Pete Holmes was talking about this book he read called This Naked Mind. I got it on Audible. And the preface, I don't even think it's chapter one, I think it's the preface, was the most honest, accurate, gut-wrenching description of waking up at 3 a.m., after you've been drinking, and if you have been drunk as an adult, or if you are drinking too much regularly, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You wake up uh, almost like clockwork, and I think maybe that's where they say 3 a.m. is the witching hour. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is. Um, but if you drink, there's like a 2:30 to 3:30 a.m. period where your body will wake up. And it almost seems like it doesn't matter when you go to bed. And I know there's some science behind it about when your body finishes processing the sugar or whatever that is. I honestly don't know. I'm not a scientist. It's not my field of study, but I know that for almost everybody, you wake up between 2:30 and 3:30 in the morning after you've been drinking heavily. And there's a feeling you have and it is only described accurately as shame and regret and you immediately start questioning everything that happened that night previously and you immediately do an inventory. What did I do? What did I say? And hopefully most of the time it was fine and you take a little bit of a deep breath, but there's that building, that building anxiety that has been created from uh, what's going to be your hangover in a few more hours. And that shame is so powerful. And if you did do something that you regret, maybe you sent a drunken text, maybe you insulted a loved one, just acted out, or maybe you drove drunk, whatever that is, if you did something that you consider to be bad by your sober moral code, that shame is so powerful. And sometimes you sit there and negotiate with yourself at three in the morning, you're laying in bed, you feel like shit and you're negotiating and you're saying never again. Like, holy shit, I can't believe I did that. I'm never doing this again. And the author of the book, This Naked Mind, describes that moment so well. It was actually like hard to listen to because I was like, oh my God, I know, I know that moment. I hate that moment. But I know that moment because I've had it time and time and time again. And that's when I began to change my perception on alcohol. And that's what that whole book is about rethinking how, you know, alcohol. And it really it gets a little crazy and we'll get into that in just a minute. But it was very shortly after I found that book that I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis. I didn't know what that was, what it was all about. Um, And to this day, it's still a very confusing disease that has no cause or cure. And it's frustrating in general. But the point of that is I had to go on an immunosuppressant drug called methotrexate, which affects your liver. So before I could go on that drug, I had to get a liver test. Uh, my liver came back as a slightly fatty liver, and even the doctors said, "Don't worry about it. Literally, everybody has this," um, which in itself is a statement on this country, right? Because um, <laughs> it's, it's not only is it caused by alcohol, but it can also be caused by diet, and so that means you're either you know drinking too much or you eat shitty. Um, Or combination of the both of them, because welcome to America. And I was like, okay. So I had to get my liver levels, my enzyme levels, into the normal range before I could start the prescription. So that right there, I was like, okay, I have a health factor. Uh, So I'm not going to drink for, you know, a month. Eat some broccoli, see what happens. And sure enough, I didn't drink for a month and retested everything and. Everything was healthy, so I uh, then I started my medication. Because it affects the liver, it was recommended that I not drink on it. Now, remind you, at this time, I was running a separate podcast called Modern Beers and 90s Nostalgia. Now, as you can guess, half of that podcast is about craft beer. And I was visiting breweries, I travel for work, so I was all over the country at different breweries, and I'd built this cult following of people that were coming to me for beer recommendations, and I gained all this knowledge. Uh, I made craft beer my hobby, which would later turn into my undoing. But I, I was—I loved it. I was obsessed with it. So the fact that I couldn't drink for the six months I was on this medication, I was like, okay, well, the second that six months is over. I got—I have some episodes of my podcast I want to record. It wasn't till later I would recognize this as a rationalization. So four or five months goes by and I go see my doctor for a checkup and I say, because my doctor has told me previously he takes this same medication for his rheumatoid arthritis. And I said, hey doc, do you not drink? He says, no, I have, you know, a couple glasses of wine on the weekend or whatever. I was like, okay, so like even on this medication, I can still have Like a couple beers, like one or two beers a week. Again, bookmark this because this is the rationalization. Uh, And the doctor, not knowing, uh, because I didn't even know that I was struggling with uh, any sort of alcohol use disorder. uh, He says, yeah, you know, one or two drinks, like literally one or two drinks is fine. That was all the invitation I needed. I went home. I told Erica and mind you during this entire four and a half, five months I had been still going to the liquor store and finding limited edition beers and these, you know, aged stouts and and keeping them in my fridge in the basement waiting for waiting essentially to drink them and, and do this podcast, not this podcast, but the podcast I was doing. And I, I remember it was my, it was my five month date. I got the okay to have my one or two drinks a week. And I said, that, that's perfect. I'll drink every Saturday. I'll have one beer and I'll record it. And it'll be for my podcast and I can do my podcast again. And that's all I need. And that's what I told myself. And so after five months of being sober, I, <laughs> I started drinking again one Saturday, it was a, I remember the beer and everything and the feeling of absolute failure when I took that drink and I wrestled with it before I did it. And my wife even told me, she's like, it's Justin, it's a beer. It's no big deal. You're, you're exaggerating. Cause that's the biggest problem is when you're the only one that knows that you have a problem. And if you're in denial about it and everyone else has given you rationalizations and justifications, nothing's going to change. And things should have changed because leading up to that moment, when I drank again, after five months, I realized a few pretty important facts. One, since I was 17 years old until I was, I think 35 at the time. So we'll just round up and say 20 years that was the longest I'd gone without drinking five months. And then I realized that would be the longest anybody I knew went without drinking without some sort of medical ailment that forces you not to drink. Nobody just quits drinking for that period of time. And then I started thinking about everything that I had quit for that period of time or longer. You know, I can name foods, that I didn't eat. I didn't eat red meat for a year once. Uh, I, I didn't eat broccoli probably like I could. I didn't eat asparagus for, uh, maybe six months to a year, there's all these things that come and go in your life, especially that you consume, uh, as far as food and beverages, but the constant from when you start is alcohol. Like I said in the beginning, one day you start drinking and then you just don't stop drinking. And if you think about just that, that was so eye-opening for me, uh not just as a statement on my own behaviors, but as a statement on society. Like what what is wrong with us to where the one constant we can have in our lives and put in our bodies is quite literally a poison. So that really blew my mind. And then I started realizing that my personality had changed in that five months. I'd become, uh, not the person I was in high school, but I became that person. I became part of that personality. Uh, I started laughing at more stuff. I started feeling more. Um, and looking into it further, I found out that alcohol numbs your emotions. Uh, and it takes, I forget what the numbers are, but something like one or two months of not drinking to really start to feel those things again. And I mean, my, uh, my cat 14 years died during that summer. I wasn't drinking and part of me wanted to drink part of me wanted to come home from the animal emergency room where we had to put him down and I was just a fucking wreck and I wanted to come home and I wanted to just drink but I couldn't and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I I know that feeling now I know that love I know that loss and it's a feeling that I wouldn't give up because it was a real feeling, it was a real emotional feeling, and it wasn't numbed, and I didn't get drunk and forget about it, and am talking about it like I can feel it right now. And it means a lot to me, and sometimes it hurts, but it's not bad, that's not a bad thing. So that five months ended, I started drinking again, like clockwork every Saturday. And I'd accumulated these beers over the last five months, most of which were high alcohol content. So when I say I was having one or two beers every Saturday, it was one or two, you know, 10 to 18% alcohol beers. I was really pushing the limits there. Then I started feeling side effects from the medication and we stopped it uh, like 30 days early. And I was like, Awesome. I'm going to go back to drinking, like whatever drinking behaviors I had. And the holidays were coming right up right after that. And I welcomed it with open arms and right back into everything. So come April, the following year, this current year, that's coming to an end. I uh, was doing this podcast and I was traveling for work and I kept, you know, waking up hungover in hotel rooms I kept remembering how it felt when this wasn't happening, when, when this wasn't a constant. And then I got news that my blood levels had gone back up and I needed to go back on the prescription. And part of me was so relieved. Cause I knew that I wasn't going to quit drinking on my own. I knew it at that point. I knew that was not going to happen. I wanted it to happen. But I knew it wasn't going to happen, and then they came down like a medical hallelujah and said, you know what, no more drinking, you have to go back on this prescription. So my wife and I had a vacation scheduled uh, for to go out west, and we went out west, and I drank on that trip, and it was fun, I, we didn't get out of hand, like, you know, shared some wine on a balcony in Sedona and Arizona, like... Went to a couple breweries out there and it was great. Uh, there was nothing crazy, no dramatic event happened. And then when I got home, I had a mix and match six pack left and I finished it and used each beer for a future episode of modern beers and nineties nostalgia podcast, which I still have those introductions recorded. I don't think I only used one of them. I stopped making that podcast. Which was probably a super great decision for me. And on June 24th, I quit drinking. And it's been six months and two days now as of recording this. I'm so happy with my decision. Now, I want to get to the... Scientific, factual part of this, uh, because there are a lot of things that went into my success thus far. And it's incredibly important to point those out, because had these factors not been in place, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. So I quit drinking on June 24th, 2019. A week from then, July 4th weekend, we moved into our new house. I moved everything I was happy to not be drinking again and I uh, you know I bought some craft beers that were non-alcoholic uh, that's one thing I learned the first time that there are craft breweries out there that brew only non-alcoholic beer because I got so into beer that I really enjoy the flavor of beer like I like like not Bud Light I don't sit around and go oh man I miss Bud Light but I uh, like Talking hops and really good stouts like an oatmeal stout and um, a, a good like hefeweizen, just certain flavors that you can only get in like good craft beer. And I found these breweries that make that non-alcoholic, so that was a saving grace for the summer. And then at the end of the summer in August, um, I decided to go back to school because I was joke that I just. Collect degrees. Um, lo and behold, this would be the class that I would be doing during making this podcast that you're listening to that would put me on the track that I am currently on to becoming a licensed professional counselor. So it all worked out. But I start taking a class called The Fundamentals of Alcohol and Substance Abuse. So I'm not going to lecture you on alcohol and how terrible it is for you. There are some things that you should just know. But I did give a presentation in this class that I wanna read some from and see if you guys get anything out of it. Because it, the education part of it changed my life. It changed my perspective. It changed my life. So I think it's worth sharing. So alcohol has been a staple in society before society even existed. Uh, There's a Penn Museum research project that discovered what is now considered to be the earliest evidence of alcohol from Neolithic village in Northern China, dating back to like 7,000 BC. Uh, Since that time, alcohol has been a staple in, you know, religions, rituals, medicine, and of course, social gatherings. Um, And then uh, as society progressed, alcohol was looked at as somewhat of a status symbol. Um, You know, even in modern America, the drink you choose says something about you, who you are, and how successful you are. It's it's a little ridiculous. Uh, it changes with each generation, but certain drinks like represent an entire personality the same way stereotypes work on race and ethnicity. Uh, it's <laughs> you may see someone's drink order and think they're like a hipster, like they order a PBR. Uh, maybe they're a CEO, like if they have maybe they have a brown liquor that's super expensive. Um, maybe it's a you know a basic bitch with a can of White Claw. Either way. Uh, there's We assign these, these stereotypes, and we do that because alcohol is just like anything else in our society, right? Whatever you choose defines who you are. Um, and this is obviously a very broad, judgmental perspective, but nonetheless, it's the way commercials work. It's the way advertising works. And these stereotypes, and many more that you may already be thinking of, um, this is just how your mind reacts to countless hours of advertising, TV shows, movies, magazines, social media... Um, and because most people's susceptibility to advertising, uh, these stereotypes have been likely reinforced. You know, if you go out to the bar or to a restaurant for dinner, or maybe even to a friend's house, see what kind of alcohol they buy. Like it's, it gets reinforced so many times. And a lot of people think that they are not susceptible to advertising. Um, I've fought that too. you know, you go through this high and mighty no one's in control of my mind, but me, uh, (laughs) which is, it's fine. If you think that way, it's typically not true. Um, and I think a great, a great picture of that is fireball whiskey, right? So I, I asked a bunch of college students to identify blank labels of alcohol, uh, students that range from, you know, 18 to like 35. It was a community college, (laughs) But 89% of them uh, correctly labeled Fireball Whiskey. Um, the thing is, most people don't remember Fireball by its original name, Dr. McGillicuddy's Fireball Schnapps. It was first released by Seagram's and a series of other Schnapps flavors in the mid-80s. Then low sales led to Seagram selling off the brand to another company who, in 2007, rebranded it as just Fireball Whiskey. And the sales of this didn't really take off either, but then Fireball went right where they knew they could get a following. Nashville. Uh, and they spent time in downtown Nashville. They got mentions in country songs by Florida Georgia Line and Chase Rice and Blake Shelton, and they specifically targeted college kids. So there's a point to this. In 2011, uh, Fireball sales went up to $1.9 million, which, you know, in the big grand scheme of things, isn't huge. However, in 2014, after their country songs and very targeted marketing, fireball sales went up to $863 million from 1.9 in three years because of advertising. It's crazy. When I learned all this, I was like, holy shit. Like for a number of reasons. One of those being that just on fireball, just one specific brand of liquor. uh, We spent $863 million in a year. What the fuck? Like, that's crazy. (laughs) And, I mean, that brings us to some of the numbers that blew my mind, right? Uh, Alcohol accounts for billions and billions and billions of dollars. But alcohol costs, costs what we pay as Members of this country, uh, alcohol costs the U.S. $234 billion annually. Uh, it's the third leading cause of preventable death, second only to tobacco and uh, overweight obesity related diseases. Alcohol is responsible for over 88,000 deaths annually, um, contributes to 40% motor vehicle accidents. Kind of talked about that a little already. And these you know, these are numbers that you might hear in uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving ad or whatever that looks like, but just take yourself out of it for a second and think of that. That's staggering. So the problem that we see now is we know all this stuff. And there's not really warnings out there. And you might be thinking, that's not true. I mean, you're Justin, you're talking about mother's against drunk driving and student against drunk driving. But the government doesn't warn you about any of this. If you look at a warning label on anything alcoholic in this country, it's going to say something like um, pregnant women shouldn't drink. That's whoop-dee-doo. And look at every single alcohol commercial on television. The best you will get from a warning is drink responsibly. First of all, what the fuck does that even mean? Don't mix liquor and beer? Like what drink responsibly. Watch any commercial for any prescription drug out there. Most of the commercial is some background voice saying like this uh, may cause for this and you may die and you may kids a heart disease and blah blah like it's all it's all warnings. It's all health warnings. And the best you can get from the third leading preventable killer in the country is drink responsibly. I get fired up over this because, like, what the fuck? That's, that's so messed up. And you don't even think about it because it's been ingrained in our society for generations. Like, you've never actually been able to form your own opinion on alcohol. It's already been set out there for you. It's nuts. A 2017 survey conducted by the American Institute for Cancer Research... Only 39% of people knew that alcohol increased the risk of cancer. Yeah, just drinking one drink a week can increase your risk for cancer. Uh, In fact, common knowledge, like meaning the majority of people surveyed, now believe that moderate drinking, one to three drinks a day, can benefit your health, which isn't true. Uh, A lot of people go to wine for this. But the amount of beneficial substance in wine alone, it's just not true. You can get more by a glass of grape juice. But, you know, journalists and websites need readers and clicks and articles about the benefits of drinking a glass of wine attract a lot more attention than an article about how we as a country are drinking too much. And frankly, like from a psychological standpoint, we would much rather find and read an article that reinforces our behavior rather than something that goes against it. Um, it's, it's just crazy. This one, this next little snippet, I uh, really opened my eyes. So real quick fact about binge drinking, binge drinking for a guy is five or more drinks per like drinking episode, you know, per evening or day or whatever that looks like for a woman. It's four to some people this sounds like, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that's. Yeah, you know, I usually I'll have like three beers, not five, or whatever that looks like for you. And for some people, maybe that's like, oh, shit, I usually have 10 beers. Let's put that in perspective. Uh, With craft beer, if you were like me and a craft beer drinker, your ABV on your beers, your alcohol by volume was probably anywhere from 8 to 12%, which means each beer is about two drinks, which means if you're drinking three beers every time, like three craft beers every time you drink, every time you drink you're binge drinking and whether you have a defensive opinion about that that i just told you uh it doesn't matter that's scientific that's that's the scientific definition of binge drinking and binge drinking raises your risk of having a stroke by 39% and that's something i was literally doing every time i drank like usually more than that i didn't buy a six pack to like last me the weekend, about a six pack to last me like that night, or and maybe I'll have the sixth one tomorrow. So the fact that I am knock on wood as healthy as I am, minus an autoimmune disease, <laughs> is remarkable. Binge drinking is more common than you can ever imagine, and the thing that really starts to maybe piss people off I know I got a little upset about it is the amount of money that's put into the people that have the ability to make changes and educate people um, that don't so what I'm saying is like alcohol tax revenue accounts for 12% the overall federal excise tax so that's like nearly ten billion dollars 12% 12% of the total federal excise tax is just from alcohol. Over 30 million is spent on alcohol lobbying. In addition to that, 18.6 million made in campaign contributions. And this does not even account for money used to throw fundraisers and other illicit costs buried under a number of subsidiary companies. Over $2 billion spent on alcohol advertising annually. I don't even know if that factors in Super Bowl commercials, which are you know, sometimes hundreds of million dollars a piece. So let me switch gears a little go back to alcohol and society. Cause this is some of the stuff at this point I'm sober and I'm fired up, right? Like, <laughs> I'm like, Oh shit. Like alcohol is obviously bad for me, but there weren't even things in place. Now <laughs> I got to stop myself there. Cause it sounds like I'm not taking blame for my own behavior. Uh, and I absolutely am 100% to blame for my decision to drink, uh, especially knowing my susceptibility, given my genetics. I shouldn't have drank as much as I did. I should have known and identified that road long before I was able to. That said, (laughs) um, just to help gain a little better perspective on alcohol in our society. Uh, when we look at a character like, uh, let's say, Homer Simpson, right? So <laughs> it's easy to dismiss his undeniable ties to like Duff Beer because A, he's cartoon and B, he's a constant screw up. You know, like Peter Griffin from Family Guy, like these cartoon dads that are just like alcoholics, but they're always screwing up and it's like, ha 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 ha. And so his, you know, habitual drinking is always underscored by constant mistakes, missed deadlines, and, you know, even a good amount of property damage in the right episode. Uh, But when you put a critical lens on alcohol and everything else we consume, you quickly see a pattern of the main character, the protagonist, the hero, the one uh, we'll likely look to as a role model, as someone who uses alcohol in the same way we see in commercials. Uh, You're Tony Stark's, you know, like Iron Man. Uh, Take James Bond, for instance, you know, when he orders a martini at a bar. Shaken not Stirred. He's in a tuxedo, you know, common symbol of celebration or success. He's usually flirting with a very attractive woman who's typically impressed with his order, you know, at least enough to possibly spark up a conversation. It's giving James Bond confidence. Uh John Hamm character Don Draper in Mad Men, right? Alcohol gets him into a lot of trouble, but it's also this symbol of his financial success. It's a coping method. You know, it's that's what the that's what the grown up adult does. After a hard day. And then some characters uh, drink so much that if you were to follow their lead, you would likely end up with an alcohol use disorder just based on the episode's TV watch. I mean, where would Carrie Bradshaw be without her cosmopolitan? Sex in the City is like a show that has five main characters: Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, Miranda, and alcohol. Uh, it's these little things that you don't even really pick up on because they're just normalized. and that's the whole point I'm trying to make is it's all just normalized. In nearly every film and TV show since the beginning of film and television, alcohol has played a role. Whether it's the two guy roommates in their apartment while having a beer, or the victorious female lawyer celebrating her recent win with a glass of wine, it's always there. Then to add insult to injury, when alcohol is actually portrayed as a problem, or a character is identified as an alcoholic, they will cons- uh, consistently be the, like the villain, or made to be stupider or dumber. And while there's, I mean, there's exceptions to this rule. Even episodes of TV shows that, or you know, episodes of TV shows that showcase an alcoholic as their main theme for that episode, something like I don't know, like Grey's Anatomy or Parenthood or something, it's often un- overshadowed by you know any number of other episodes where everything's back to normal and people are acting beside their co-star, alcohol. And media is not the only place. Uh, that we've been made to normalize alcohol use. It's an easy scapegoat, but in our everyday society, we have rituals and signs that reinforce this behavior every single day. I mean, look at the term happy hour. Given that alcohol is a depressant, the term in itself is an oxymoron, right? So aside from that, the fact that happy hour is synonymous with so many other numbing effects of alcohol is further evidence of an uninformed, undereducated society. Happy hour is used as an advertising technique to unwind after work, to de-stress, to get loose, and furthermore, it's then expected you continue your commute home. It's, uh, this, is, this has been around for decades. So, you know, as I said, I used to run this podcast on craft beer. and Sorry, circle back to me. <laughs> Had this podcast. You can still download it. Um, it's craft beer. Uh, modern beers and 90s nostalgia. That's what it's called. And I realized... When I moved into my new house, uh, I don't, I don't have a bar like I had in my old house that I built and I had all this, all this beer shit, beer glasses, beer t-shirts, beer signs, beer, beer, everything. Then I thought about my last few Christmases and birthdays and beer had become part of my identity. There were a number of people in my life that when they thought Justin, they thought beer. And that really fucking bummed me out. I didn't want to be, I didn't want that association. I didn't like that all of my gifts were beer t-shirts or flight glasses. And I, I mean, sometimes I asked for it. And it really, you know, it's a, it's an easy thing to get people if you know, they like it and it's easy because it's everywhere. I mean, when you think of Pinterest and Etsy and all the little knickknack stores, think of all those signs, all those like light beers for light men. Like all I need is friends and a fine glass of wine and all this kitchen towels and aged wooden signs that talk about how important beer and wine is to this household it is everywhere and we don't blink an eye at it and it's poison when I started thinking about all this I didn't miss alcohol anymore I was actually super pissed off that it had such control over me And became such a part of my identity that it it was synonymous with who I was. I didn't want to be that person. That was the biggest thing that I did to help myself stop drinking and continue to stop drinking. I got off the medication months ago. And I told myself when I got off it, I wasn't going to pick alcohol back up. And I didn't. I'm happy to report, like I said earlier, I'm over six months sober now. And I see another six months in my future. Uh, Like the saying says, go day by day. And I don't know if I would label myself an alcoholic. Uh, And it's really funny because the closest people to me, my in-laws, my wife... Nobody, nobody, nobody said anything to me ever about my drinking. And I think it's because that's, like I said, it was part of my identity. It was never a problem because I either kept those shameful secrets to myself or nobody else wanted to admit that I had a problem. Cause guess what? If I have a problem, they might have a problem too. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. And it took me a very long time to get to that point. But I had success for a few reasons. And that's the main point I want to get to in this episode. Not only sharing my story, but sharing the steps that I took that can give you success. Whether you want to not drink for January, not drink for 2020, or, you know, not drink tomorrow maybe maybe that's the first step whatever that is there are some things that I really had to take stock of in order to get to where I'm at today so first I had to eventually take an honest inventory of how much I was drinking and you have to ask yourself that like how much are you drinking how much are you really drinking We tend to lie to ourselves more than anybody when it comes to this, because that shame that comes associated with that is really fucking heavy. And then maybe, you know, the holidays just happen. How's that affected you? Have you been drinking a lot more? Because if your body has come to expect like X amount of alcohol is going to go in, it's going to be even more difficult to just cut it off, right? So know what you're stopping essentially. And then you want to identify your triggers. Um, some people don't like the word triggers. It just seems pretty easy, so I use it. This is one thing that I didn't even realize until a couple of weeks ago. I was in my last class for this alcohol and substance abuse class for my degree, and... I'm, You know, I've... <laughs> When we talk about alcohol in the class, I'm in there and I'm mentally checking boxes. I was like, oh yeah, I did that. Drink alone, yeah, yeah. Hide drinking, sure. When Erica would say like, don't have another beer, I'd say, okay. Then I'd go like pound one in the bathroom because I was fucking wasted and I didn't give a shit. Um, Just checking all these boxes. So I'm comfortable saying I had an alcohol use disorder. Absolutely. Um, And because I fit the fucking mold for it. And the scarier thing is, the closest people in my life didn't say a thing to me and it's not their job to, Cause even if they did, I wouldn't do shit about it unless I wanted to do it for myself. And that applies to everybody. So even if you're listening to this and you think someone else needs to like listen to this and take an inventory of what they're doing, they're not going to do it unless they're ready to do it. Uh, that's just the reality of it. But what I didn't realize until a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned this earlier, let's see if you caught it. I quit drinking on June 24th, and then we moved into our new house. There are zero location triggers for me in my life. <laughs> There's I've never drank in this house that I live in. I've never drank in the basement. I've never drank in the living room, the kitchen. Never had a beer in the garage while, or while mowing the lawn. I've never drank in this house. I've never been drunk in this house. That took so much weight off me that I didn't even realize. My old house, everything was ritualistic. And that's part of, that's part of an alcohol use disorder. Like, there, everything was a ritual. Mow the lawn, get on my freaking rider, embrace the white trash, crack open a beer. It's my lawn beer. You know, and I'd have my shower beer. I built a bar in my basement and had plenty of (laughs) fucking beers down there. People came over. I had, you know, it was all, I could relate every location that house to drinking. And I didn't have that with this place and it was absolutely wonderful. (laughs) And it was a trigger that I didn't have to worry about. And I am so thankful for that. And I know that's a big thing and you can't, you can't take yourself out of your home but you can identify where you're drinking. And obviously some of those are going to be easy. Like you, you're not going to be able to go out to the bar or the brewery or maybe a couple of restaurants. If you're going to quit drinking for a while, because those are going to be places you're going to want to drink because that's what, you know, you're conditioned whether you know it or not to do that. And there's going to be people that you might not be able to hang out with for a little while. I have a lot of friends that I realize are fucking drinking buddies. And we can't hang out. <laughs> like it sucks. But we don't like we don't have an intimate relationship where we're having deep conversations where alcohol's not involved. And that those relationships sometimes aren't worth the hassle. And the ones that are, it's going to take a little time because I can't always be around that, and sometimes they don't want to be around me. And you're going to find when you're not drinking, people that are drinking, are going to be your biggest fucking obstacle. And you got to, kind of brings us to the next part, but you got to prepare yourself for that. When you don't drink you hold up a mirror to everybody else around you. That's drinking and the people that drink, uh, I don't want to say healthy, but the people that don't drink much, right? The people that have those, those assholes that can have one glass of wine uh, once a week and it's fine. Um, uh, those people are not going to be problems for you probably, but people that may have, had those 3 a.m. wake-up calls people that have that shame or guilt somewhere in the back of their head that they stored away until the next 3 a.m. wake-up call those people are probably gonna ask you why you're not drinking and they may even put some pressure on you to drink they might even just give you a beer or give you a glass of wine and say don't be stupid like you're being silly you're, dude, I've known you for years. You don't have a drinking problem. Or sober January. It's stupid. Like that's, New Year's resolutions are stupid. They're going to put down your idea. And it's going to be real fucking hard. And those might be people that you don't want to be around. And if you have to be around them, you have to be prepared for that conversation. Even if that conversation is just you saying, back the fuck off. Like I appreciate your input, but back the fuck off. And one thing I did not realize, I thought it was just me. And then taking this class, realized that this is what happens. I eat a fuck ton of candy right now. (laughs) Like I eat a lot of candy, ice cream. Like just, I eat sugar foods of a fucking Kevin McAllister in home alone. Like I'm like, yeah. Um, And it it almost bothers me. I'm like, God, I fucking, I'm craving like, I don't know, gummy worms or some shit. And then I read that this is what happens when you quit, if you, if you drink too much and you quit drinking, your body wants sugar because alcohol is sugar and you stopped giving it this regular intake of sugar. So I've replaced it with a lot of that. And that's just be prepared for that and try to make it somewhat healthy. It's difficult. I mean, I got to tell you, I struggle with it uh, between candy and ice cream. Ice cream has become a fucking staple in my household, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's better than a fucking six-pack of IPAs. I'll tell you that much. And I've also, uh, you know, get some LaCroix, some sparkling water, um, get some non-alcoholic beers. There's so many good ones out there. If you are buying O'Doul's or even like Labatt's non-alcoholic, you are missing out on some amazing non-alcoholic beers. Uh, you can check my Instagram message me. I have a laundry list of them. Uh, you can get them in some stores locally and you can order most of them from the internet and they come pretty quick. Highly recommend it. It is craft beer still. So it's still expensive, like, you know, 12, 15 bucks a six pack, but damn, is it delicious and really replaces that, uh, Those hops. I love them hops. And then uh, another thing, you got to recognize what you have upcoming. You know, if you're doing a thing for January, know what you're going to be doing in January. What parties are you going to be going to? What events are you going to be at? You're going to be at work events. Is there something where you know you're going to like run into your buddy alcohol and have to figure that out? Uh, Know ahead of time. Kind of prep yourself for that. And then last the thing that I struggle with in all my addictions, um, (laughs) recognize the rationalization. Cause I will guarantee you at some point, whether it's a day, a week, a month, forever, however you want to quit drinking for at some point, you're going to tell yourself, I can just drink. And it's not going to be those exact words. You're going to circle around to get to those words. And you might be having those words in the back of your head and just be waiting and waiting until someone, like my wife said the first time I quit, Justin, it's just a beer. Because she didn't know that I was struggling. But if for someone that was struggling not to drink when I heard, it's just a beer... Believe me, in my mind, I said, Hey guys, guess what our new national anthem is? (laughs) It's just a beer. That's all I needed. And that's rationalization. You're rationalizing your behavior using that tiny justification. Recognize the rationalizations. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself that it's not easy. Be honest with yourself that it's everywhere around you. Take that honest inventory. Remember those 3 a.m. wake-up calls. And I wish you the best of luck. And I really appreciate you guys listening to me tell my story and lecture you a little. And I hope this helps anybody that might be going down this road or maybe just thinking. Just going over some thoughts.